Welcome to the Fisher's Second Ward Podcast. This is a podcast to help members of the Fisher's Second Ward of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints get to know their neighbors in the ward. The ideas and thoughts that we share aren't necessarily a reflection of the official doctrines of the church. We just hope to strengthen our friendships and our faith by sharing our stories. Thanks for listening, and let me introduce you to a member of the ward. And this time... <laughs> It is a conversation. I'm super excited about this conversation. I'm with Marsha French, and I think the reason that I'm having this conversation with Marsha today is because Jeff is the one who's been helping set things up, and she couldn't get away. <laughs> so, welcome. Thanks. It's fun to be here, Ken. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited about uh, about talking to you, getting to know you a little bit. Um, I've mentioned in the past that this is just so much fun for me to get to know people in the ward in different ways than I would have. And I've known you a lot of years. We've known each other over 20 years. Yeah, 20, I think Jeff said you guys have been here 23 years, is that Yeah, right? probably. So I was, um, I think I was young men's president when you guys moved into the ward, and so you had a young man or two that I got to work with. And yeah, you worked with Josh. Yeah, Josh was a priest, and um, such a fun experience with him. I was super intimidated because I had two priests. <laughs> <laughs> And at any, at any, that age, boys just, life is hard. Yeah, you have to play with them, and you did a great job playing with them. So much fun. <laughs> so much That's fun 90% of the battle in it. <laughs> so, so let's start out, Marsha. Tell us about you. Tell us who you are. What's your story? My story. Wow. My <laughs> I like st- to keep it really narrow. <laughs> yeah, let's do real easy. <laughs> My story started in Lake. Bluff, Illinois. Well, no, it didn't. It started in LaGrange, Illinois, where I was born. I was uh, one of three. Okay. And I had a very leave-it-to-beaver life. I grew up with two parents who loved us, and we weren't wealthy by any shape of the imagination. But I had no sisters and three brothers, and I Mm. thought they... And still do, you know, hung the moon and, and lit it and everything else. And we lived in a community called Libertyville. And my dad owned the um, shoe store there where everybody went, Mount Shoes. And it was it was everything you could wish for. You know, we'd walk downtown and it was very safe. Uh-huh. At night, we'd play out till really late at night in the dark and nobody would worry or wonder and all the things that you think of in the perfect little dream world are my childhood memories. Nice. Now, I went ahead and wrote um, my memories, and my brothers read it and said, wow, (laughs) you grew up. And we were all, like, right on top of each other, Uh except for my youngest, Max, who was like, there's a little span there. But they're like, you lived in a different world than we did. (laughs) And... I have been blessed with an ability to create my own nice reality in my brain. That's great. So when dad lost his job and we moved to a very, very affluent community because we lived there and my parents served in that community, Uh we uh, got a little tiny cottage home to one of the mansions that had one bathroom and one bedroom and it had a large closet and my mom had made a darling little like dollhouse room for me. And the boys all lived on the outside porch. We have to get that we were in Lake Forest at the time. So we were maybe five or 10 minutes from the lake. So when that outside screen porch got cold, 
there was snow in there, <laughs> and they were all, and I was always jealous because they were all in one room together talking and arguing and fighting, and I was by myself, so I always wanted to be with them. Um, and my folks lost their house. They lost everything. Wow. And we had these wonderful, amazing um, experiences with friends who had, you know, they had the West Wing or the White, you know, whatever, uh-huh. and people who would take them places, and they end up at our house on Friday night. And I'm like, what do you want to come to our house for? It's like the smallest, tiniest place. But we'd all sit around and play games. And I thought, oh, we have the coolest. Everybody wants to be with my parents and my brothers and me. And this is the coolest. And my brother said, well, yeah, because we couldn't afford to do anything. So we had to stay in. And (laughs) so it was just a different. My biggest challenge was until I was married with kids, Um, I was dyslexic and I didn't know it. Hmm. And so I grew up just kind of deciding, I can remember when I was a little kid and I decided I was going to be that girl on the stage in my own little corner, in my own little room. I can be whatever I want to be. And I decided I was going to be the person who could read. I was going to just pretend. Uh And I never could. And so I would watch my brothers open these books and put down these books and talk about these books. And I thought they were geniuses because they they came out with a story after they would put these books down. Or my mom or my dad reading. And I just thought it was fascinating. But they were symbols on a piece of paper. I remember being in piano lessons. And... It didn't dawn on me until just probably 10, 15, 20 years ago that I was at the piano and I was trying to teach myself and I and I was creating pictures in my head of mm-hmm. what the music looked like so I could try and figure out how and what this this looked like. Because if I look at it one point, it looks one way. And if I look at it again, if I don't process it all the way through, it looks different. Mm-hmm. And I remember going, oh... Is it on the line or is it in a space? Hmm. And it was the first time, and my kids were older, you know, and I had taught them, you know, and I, I thought, oh, there's lines, and that's what they mean by lines and spaces. Huh. And because it's just symbols to me, I don't have a consistency of what I see on, okay. on paper. And so we had two missionaries knock on our door when I was younger, and... Elder Ingram, Doug Ingram, who will be just like my brothers, live in me forever and ever in my head, and taught us the gospel, and we all joined, excuse me, joined the church, and I thought I had created this really healthy world until I learned about a teaching that said, liars will be thrust into hell. Uh, now, how old were you when you... When I was probably... 16 when I when that happened. Okay. And I remembered I really love the idea of the church uh-huh. because it it said that the greatest thing in the world you can do is be a wife and a mom. Mm. And I knew that didn't take any reading. And I and I really gained some phenomenal social skills because I had to cover up uh-huh. the lie that I I was normal like everybody else. And my biggest fear was everybody was going to find out how stupid I was. And so I created this world, and I remember sitting in a class and hearing that and having them talk about that. 
and deciding that night in bed as I was laying in bed that, you know what, I'm okay to go to hell because I'm not okay for the rest of the world to know how stupid I am. Wow. What a trade-off, though. That was terrifying to me. But I thought, well, it's better than having to tell everybody I can't read. It's I don't want anybody to know how stupid I am because I won't have any friends. Uh-huh. And I, I socially, I was fine. Auditorily, I was great. You could tell me something and I'd get it. And we, Jeff and I got married and I thought we were doing awesome. And I had memorized all these scriptures and memorized all this stuff so I could teach my kids so they wouldn't be stupid when they were growing up. And we were... At home, and I think Jeff was serving as bishop or branch president or something, and the state president wanted to come over. And I'm like, okay, he's just going to get another calling or something for him. And I had gotten the kids. I was super strict with my schedule because I have to have everything right in line because if it's in chaos, Mm. I process differently. I mean, I have to pan out the rooms when I walk in because I have to know what's your escape route. Where do you go so you don't trip on something because my perceptions are off too. So... I remember the kid, you know, the house was always clean and the kids were down for bed and in walks uh, Bud Burlett, who was in the state presidency. And I said hi and I was going to go excuse myself. And he goes, I actually, I want to talk to you. And I went, <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to have a state calling. I didn't care. Right. I mean, yeah, make me president of whatever as long as I don't have to read. And I don't have to read in front of people. Uh-huh. So if I do have to read, I can memorize it and then pretend in front of people. And so. <laughs> We went in, and he looked at me, and he said, you need to go to school. Wow. And I remember my heart just beating really hard. And I, I had gone a semester or two to BYU. I was great with the speech classes. I was great with anything I could talk my way through, just as long as I didn't have to read and comprehend. Okay. I could fake my way pretty well. And I said, uh, no. And he said, you're talking to a lot of people, and you're counseling on a lot of people, and you don't have a paper to do that. Okay. And I said, I'm not counseling anybody. And he goes, I'm not mad at you. Don't think you've, you've done anything wrong, but this is a gift you have, and you need to go and, you know, and I kind of, I was terrified. I remember my hands were sweating. My heart was beating. And he left, and... Jeff said, I'll help you. We can do this. And I said, I just don't, I mean, I have to take history classes. And if you've never read anything in history, you don't know the difference between World War III and the Revolutionary War or anything else. Right. And so he would start telling me stories and telling me stories about my parents or my grandparents and how one side was blue and one was gray and now grandma wants to marry grandpa. And he, he just told me stories so I'd start to understand history. Okay. And I got through my history class and he would read my information to me or I would read it and memorize it. And when the kids were all in school, so we would do homework at night and they knew if mom had a book open, the house had to be absolutely silent. Mm-hmm. And so we got through my associates and we got through my bachelor's and we got through my master's and I was wow. done. And I thought, I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to do this again. And we were one month before I was going to graduate. And I was, I mean, I had all the honors and all the, I mean, I couldn't not get an A because then people would know, right? Right. And so it was a month before I was to graduate and we had a visiting professor. And he asked me, we had a night class that went from like 
six to nine or something, and we had the mid-break. And he had asked me into his office, and he did diagnostics. Mm-hmm. And he wanted me to come in. And I'm at the top of my class, right? I'm not – everybody I've, – I've been super successful in gathering information from people by doing just what you do. I need to find out about this book or I need to find out about this article because we're supposed to have read it. So I would go in early and I would ask people, what did you think about it? What did you like about it? What did you hate about it? So I definitely, you know, used everybody else's reading skills to get my information. And I remember even in high school and college feeling guilty because when they'd ask, oh, who read it? Uh-huh. And there was a thing in the 70s, and you, I mean, it, it's going to sound like I'm making it up, but it was like speed reading, and people would yeah. go through, and they'd go through really fast and turn the page and go through and turn the page. And so I figured, I'm not going to understand it anyway, so I might as well just turn the pages so I can say I read it. Sure. And that way, at least, it's not as bad as a lie. <laughs> so you'll go to a less hell. <laughs> if, yeah, I'll go to a less of a hell. And so I would do that, and... Then when I got into grad school, I just started memorizing my books. Hmm. And I would I had an hour and a half both way uh, to get to school and get back to, to my house. And I just listened to what Jeff had read in tapes. Or, mm-hmm. or so he would read things for He would read in tape or he would read out loud. And I could understand it, but I knew that for my tests, I really had to hone in and do this. And so... What we did is I just started memorizing the books. Okay. And this guy, the professor, who and I loved him, he was fascinating, and he said, hey, I want you to come in at, uh, at break. I want to talk to you. And I said, okay. And he sat me down, and he the big desk, you know, and I'm sitting in the chair kind of like I am with you right here. <laughs> and I thought, oh, he's done a diagnostics test, and I was so comfortable with myself. I'm like, oh, he, he just wants to check and see if. I like the ta- I don't know what I thought, but I didn't think I was under scrutiny. And he said, I'm just going to go through all these letters pretty quick. I want you to tell me what they are. And I'm like, okay. And we did it. And he goes, I'm going to go through really slowly, and I want you to just tell me what they are again. Okay. And we did it. Just letters of the alphabet? Uh-huh. Okay. Just letters of the alphabet. And he put everything down, and he got real serious, and he pushed himself back from the table and moved over so we were just kind of facing each other. And he said, you have one of the worst disabilities I've ever seen, or wow. worst level of, of dyslexia. And I felt like, have you ever had that dream like you're outside and you're naked or you go to school and you forget to put your clothes on or something? <laughs> That's what I felt like. I felt like somebody had just stripped me out. naked. And I'd had kids, so all my stretch marks were showing. <laughs> and I was terrified because there was a person now in the world besides me who knew how stupid I was. There was somebody out there who knew I was lying, and they could expose me. And I was so... This was your master's program? Yeah. Wow. And I was so terrified because I was literally... I was a month away from graduating. Mm -hmm. My sister-in-law and my niece were dying, and we were supposed to be helping them, and and we were moving out here that, that next month. And the world was coming down, and now everything was exposed. Wow. And I was so terrified. And I did a horrible thing. I got super defensive like we do when we get scared. Right. (laughs) 
And I stood up and took the, I, I've been on stage. I know points of power. And I stood. So he was sitting and I was at a point powerful. And I threatened him. I said, it, well, first he said, Marsha, I've been watching you every time you take a test. Uh-huh. And I've been looking and I, I don't see anything you're looking on. But every time it's straight from the book, you never miss it. Anytime it's from a lecture, you never miss it. Anytime it's comprehension from the book, you never get it. And he said, your pattern is so clear and it's so easy because it's so obvious. And he said, the only thing I can do is think that you memorize the books. And I'm like, oh, crap. It's probably not what I thought. I probably thought a different (laughs) word, but we're going to... Dang dang it! (laughs) And I just panicked. And I stood and I slammed my hand on the desk and I said, and I had looked because, you know, you covered your tracks when you lie your way Uh through life. And I said, there is nothing in this school's policy that says you cannot memorize your textbooks. Mm -hmm. And if you dare to take me out of this school and you cut off everything I've done for, you know, what, 16 years? Right. (laughs) I will have a lawyer take you to court and you will not win. I live in an area where there's a lot of powerful people Uh and I have friends. And he looked at me dumbfounded and he said, you need to sit down and you need to just take a breath. (laughs) Right. I, who knows? Maybe I was having a, you know, and he's like, you're not in trouble. I haven't said you've done anything wrong. If anything, you, you may be one of the smartest people I ever know. How you got to this point, I don't know. I can't imagine all the textbooks we have. And he opened a textbook and he read a sentence and he said, finish it. And I honestly didn't know what to do. Do I finish it and prove I memorized? Because then am I screwed? Or do I not finish it? And he thinks I wrote notes down, which is ludicrous because (laughs) writing notes is just more symbols on paper, right? Right. And I finished the sentence. And he opened another book, and he read half of the sentence, and he said, finish it. And I did. And I was shaking, and he was scared to have me go home, but he, he knew he couldn't put me back in class. Right. And we didn't have cell phones or anything like that at that point. This was 1998 and 97, 98. And I drove home, and I told the family, and they all just kind of looked at me and I remember Bree, who is probably, you know, the gentlest person, right? And she goes, oh, mom, is that why you always make your F's and your L's and everything backwards? <laughs> and they, I just looked and I ran into the bedroom and I just fell on the bed and thought, everybody knows. I didn't, I, I haven't lied to anybody. The joke's on me. Wow. And Jeff came in and he's like, whoa. Let's start all over because I'm lost. Yeah. And I said, so you guys have all been laughing behind my back? What, everybody knows? And he goes, nobody knows anything, honey. And I said, you guys all know I make my letters backwards. And then he sat down. And again, it didn't show me anything because I see it the same way. Mm -hmm. But he said, a lot of cursive just looks backwards. And so you can make some letters backwards and nobody, nobody thinks anything of it. Yeah. So we went to tell my family, and mind you, my brother's wife literally is dying of cancer, <laughs> right? 
And my other brother's coming out from California, and the whole family's there. And I'm terrified because now they're going to know I'm the stupid one and da-da-da-da. And I told it, and it was silent. Nobody said anything. I don't know if they were in shock or what. But I remember my dad saying, hey, retard, come here. And I I couldn't breathe. Uh-huh. I couldn't believe that I'm the princess. I'm the daughter. I'm right. the one he loves. And I walked over and I said something not kind. And I told him I wasn't a retard. I just, I didn't know how how to read. I just, my brain doesn't work like anybody else's. And he said, that's right. And you are about to graduate with the highest honors you can with a master's degree. Don't you ever let anybody make you feel stupid again. Don't you ever think that you can't figure it out. And it felt like somebody took a hundred thousand pounds off my shoulders. And I realized, Oh, I did make it. Mm Mm-hmm. But it was probably years before I wanted to say anything because right. there was so much shame. And you can't turn shame off that past, no, what right? No, burden, though. And, and your professor? And my professor was wonderful. He was trying to help you, it sounds like. Yeah, I just didn't and, take it that way. But, yeah, <laughs> I was wrapped up in 36 <laughs> years of lie, right? And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, from an observer standpoint, as I'm listening to the story, that here, here's a man who recognizes... There's something that can be done to help you in your studies, and you're interpreting his offers to help as attacks. Oh, complete attacks. And that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. And the fact that everybody else sees how uh, you're achieving these, these accolades, and you're, everything is just adding to the burden that now here's one more. One more lie. Yeah. One more lie. <laughs> Stand up. <laughs> Perform for everybody. Right. This is just another lie they won't see through. And it was out in the Philippines. And I became super close with one of the the general authorities. And he sat down with me. And he said, first of all, I've never had a therapist. And I love that you are my personal therapist. (laughs) I'll be your personal general authority and you be my personal therapist. Because I love to just kind of talk things back and forth with you. You're really good at what you do. And I'm like, well, thank you. And he said, now, I need to tell you something. I need to help you put your life in a different perspective. Hmm. He said, did you ever think that maybe it was because you couldn't read and because you were dyslexic that you're so good at what you do? You had to learn to read people. Uh-huh. That was your your mode of survival. Right. You had to look beyond what they were saying. You had to understand their body language. You had to understand levels of anxiety and pain. Right. And had you not had dyslexia, you wouldn't have gained those skills. Yeah, that's and true. And I thought, wow, no, I never thought about that. And he goes, what a gift you were given and I, and I don't pretend it's easy. I'm sure every day you fight with it just like people fight with not having an arm Yeah. when they want to have two arms to use something. They figured out how to use one hand. Uh-huh. But, of course, they want that other arm. And 
I said, well, you're going to be invited when I die to come and listen to me read because it's going to be phenomenal. I'm going to just read better than anybody because I'm going to be so – and we're going to have just parties listening to me read. And I'm actually going to be reading stuff off a piece of paper like everybody else reads. (laughs) It's going to be a major party. And he said, but don't you see this horrible – challenge that you deal with on a daily basis has not only been a gift to you because you got to jump into this world and do what you do, but looking for other people. I've seen, he was with me when we did the typhoon Mm. and he said, I've seen you, you in a crisis mode, just, I, I, it's like nothing phases you. You just are totally tuned in. You're reading everybody. You're making everything. You're a natural first responder because of what you've been through. Wow. And at that point, I decided I was going to be more open about it. Not. It still stings a little bit because you always wonder when you say that out loud, who's looking at you going, Oh, okay. I'm not ever doing anything with her. I, I don't want to have to carry her on my back. You know, <laughs> that kind of stuff goes right. through your head. But as you know, we just, I just finished defending my PhD and I hope never ever to walk back in a classroom <laughs> unless I'm teaching for the rest of my eternity. <laughs> yeah, so, hey, congratulations on that. That's fantastic. So happy that's, that's that okay. chapter's done. And then, but also you referenced something that, that I want to spend a little bit more time talking about. You talked about the Philippines. So how did you get to the Philippines? What was that all about? <laughs> Gads, the missions. Jeff and I, when we first got married, were both converts. Mm-hmm. And we thought neither one of us had served a mission. And we thought that would be so cool. And I have a dear, dear friend named Rich McClellan. And his mom had gone on missions when she was older. And we really hadn't ever seen a couple's mm. a missionary couple. Okay. But they used to have, at least they had in our ward when we were young parents, um, these pieces of paper they'd put on the back bulletin board. Mm-hmm. And it, it had all these different missions that w- you were available to go on throughout the world. For, for couples. Yeah, for couples. Yeah. And so instead of gathering our kids at the end of, you know, we'd let them run wild and they were wild and loud and and crazy. And we would sit and we would look at this together. Uh And we would have these dream lists of where we would want to go and what we would want to do. And um, we had served two missions already. We had done two service missions, 18 months each, here. And I went to church one day and Jeff, is a cancer patient. He struggles with cancer. And so we had been working with his team and we felt like we were stable. They had gotten him to, he's never, I mean, yeah, he's had a month or two in his whole life where he has a function because of the cancer, but he's this guy that just faces it head on and just Mm -hmm. figures out a way to do whatever it is he wants to do. And, you know, kind of, damn the torpedo full speed ahead, I'm not going, and I mean damn in a very serious sense, I'm going to stop my thought of pain so I can live. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to stop what the cancer is creating in me that says I can't do this and figure out a way around it. And uh, we got done with our second mission and he wasn't well. He was having a really bad day. 
And I can probably count the Sundays he didn't go to church on two hands. And it was one of those Sundays. And we had just finished our second mission. And I went up, Paul Sinclair had spoke. And I went up to shake his hand. And he uh, had said, okay, what's next? I'm like, what, what do you mean what's next? He said, where's the next mission going to be? Or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I panicked. And he said, you need to get your papers in. Now, we had debt. Mm-hmm. We owned a home. We weren't in any position to go on a mission. The only thing we had going for us is we didn't have any children living in the house that were dependent on us. <laughs> that was the only thing we had going for us. And Jeff was doing all these cancer treatments. And I went home, and this Rich McClellan I told you about, mm-hmm. um, we're still really, really great friends. And I had called him, and I was panicking. I mean, I was – it was like the day I told you that I had that thing with the professor – and I was I, I was hyperventilating. I was scared to death. I couldn't imagine why would a state president say this if he knew that Jeff had had cancer and what are we thinking here? And this is a horrible idea. And we had no money and we had medical debt. And I called Rich and he's like, your earning potential's really high. And if you got somebody in the house to take care of your mortgage – and you cashed in all your retirement, which we really didn't have much of because we mm-hmm. lost everything when we moved to Indiana. He said, you could probably sustain yourself on a mission for 18 months. And I'm like, what? That's not what I expected from him at all. <laughs> and I thought, this is weird. And it actually, oh, this is so long ago. And my dyslexia doesn't let me think in order. But now I'm remembering I had a call during that month from Salt Lake. And they had called and they had interviewed me. But the interview lasted like 45 minutes. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I don't remember much about it. But then I had another call, like two days later. And I was working for the governor at the time, um, running one of the state uh, grants. And so I was traveling and driving all over the state. And I remember going home and going, Jeff, I had this call. And he goes, oh, they probably are just interviewing you to see if you want to be a counselor it, at like LDS services or something. And I'm like, all right, that was really weird though. And then when the next one came, it was almost the exact same. Hmm. And I was on for about 45 minutes. And I remember at the end of it saying, sir, I know it was one of the general authorities. I said, can I ask a question? And he said, absolutely. I said, what is this about? And he kind of paused for a second and he goes, sister French, this is the second time you've been talked to this week. You have no idea what this is about. (laughs) No, sir. Why did you stay on the phone? <laughs> I'm like, because it came up LDS, you know, church. I think everybody would stay on the phone and answer any questions if they got a call from church headquarters. And he goes, oh, no, absolutely not. That's not true. Thank goodness for caller ID now. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And he said, well, we'll get back to you. Um, then they wanted me to come out. And it was Bree's wedding I think it was, I was going out for her, I think it was her wedding shower that Case was thrown for her. And he had called, somebody had called and said, can you come out for an interview to Salt Lake? We'd like to talk to you this week. And I said, no, I'm really busy this week. And I've got, I was, I was helping LDS Social Services. I had two birth mothers and I had, um, 
that were ready to give birth, and there was no way I was going to take off. And I was going out the following week or two weeks later or something like that. And I go, no, I can't come, but I'll be out in two weeks. That will be great. We'll talk to you then. And I went in, and I sat down and had this interview, and they said, well, you know, we're, we're not, you know, doing anything. We just want you to talk to you and da-da-da-da-da. And so I forgot. That preceded all this. This was kind of all in the same month. Uh-huh. And as I started to walk out, it was, I think, Dennis Perkins that I talked to. And he's, you know, he was saying, you know, this mission could be like in the Philippines. And I'm like, oh, I don't do. I don't do out of my town. I don't do out of my, I do service missions in my own community. And then after that, I had had that prompting from Paul Sinclair and then I went home and kind of blew up, you know, freaked out and I called Rich McClellan and Jeff came down as I had just finished my call with Rich and I was sobbing and shaking. I think Jeff probably has seen me sob and shake four times in 45 years we've been married or whatever it is we've been married. Mm-hmm. And so he was ready to take me to the hospital and he said, you know, let me give you a blessing. So he gave me a blessing and I remember getting up after the blessing and he said, Are you, I can take you to the hospital now. And I'm like, well, I don't need to go to the hospital now. The Lord just said it was all going to work out. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, <laughs> we're going on a mission. And I'm like, as long as it's not hot and humid, that'll <laughs> be <the> fine. <laughs> and uh, we got a call, and it was to the Philippines, and we left, and it was intense. Yeah. <laughs> it was intense. We almost lost the house. We went about $40,000 into debt. We lived off credit cards to get to the end of our mission. Um, It was really challenging. And we came home, and Rich was very prophetic in his statement of, you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. I came home. I didn't know where I was going to work. I had worked really closely with Jeff Jensen. He was the bishop of the other ward yeah. before we left. and Which is this ward. but Which we, is we are, this we ward now, ward. our ward now. <laughs> and I sat there in church the first Sunday, and I hadn't slept for two or three days because it was just overwhelming to get back. And you go from great poverty and great want to Fisher's, Indiana, and it's a little rough. Yeah. And I remember going and picking up some groceries because everybody, we had all the family in, and thinking, oh, I'm getting so much. This is such a waste. This could feed our whole branch at home. And I found out later that I came home and put stuff away, and Casey and Bree took off and went to Kroger right after I got back because they said, what is this? This isn't going to feed the family. (laughs) We'll go get groceries. Apparently, mom's out of reality. What a shocker. And so... We came home, and that Sunday I was sitting in the Relief Society room during Sunday school, so zoned out, feeling like I don't belong here. And I felt a tap on my shoulder, and it was Jeff Jensen. Mm -hmm. And he said, could you step out for a minute? And I said, sure. And he said, I have three people in my office that are in great need. And I had prayed and fasted. What do you want me to do? Do I go out? out west and get a job. What do, I had there a couple potential possibilities there, but I didn't want to leave my home. And, right. and uh, he said, I hate doing this to you today, but are you ready to work? And I'm like, yes, yes, I'm ready. <laughs> and he goes, let's go. And we marched in and we kind of just talked with the people. And I was up and running that week. And 
we dug out of our debt, and a year and a half later, we were in Africa doing the same thing. Another mission. Another mission. And then three day, or three weeks before we left Africa, I was woke at three in the morning and told, you need to go get your PhD. And I said, no, no, I think I've, I've, I'm giving 20 years to the church. I'm, I'm, I'm doing missions. This is, this is enough. We can say no when we feel like no is the right answer and no is the right answer. And I couldn't get back to sleep, but I got busy because you're busy on your missions. Uh-huh. And the next night, the same thing happened. And again, I wrestled all night and said, but I get to say no. <laughs> and I fell asleep that morning and I didn't even go in that morning because I was so tired. I hadn't slept. And then I was okay that night. We went to bed and I woke up the third night. Same hour, same wow. moment, same intense thought. And I woke up Jeff and said, the Lord wants me to go to school. Awesome. <laughs> and I'm like, no, not awesome. And I called Salt Lake right away and they said, you take that time that you need and you go get that degree and I put a call out to the director of the program here at at IUPUI and she happened to be quote unquote just happened to be in Africa at the time wow yeah yeah talk about I need you to make this call now so you can get a set witness so this isn't you questioning because you're going to need to have your feet really grounded and Right. No, this is right, because a lot of things are going to happen in these next five years for you. And uh, so we got into the program, and it again, it wasn't easy, because the things I wrote were crap, <laughs> because I can't <laughs> write. So I had to redo, and I almost didn't make it through a couple of classes, and I still have to get A's in my classes, because that's my OCD. And so we just kept going, and in the process, it's been it's been a ride. Because certainly we've found out about Josh's leukemia. And right. So in the middle of this whole process, you have a son who's gotten sick, leukemia, and then yeah. it went in remission. Yep. And it came back. And then it came back. And so he it passed away. Hard. Huh? It came back hard. It came back hard and it came back quick. And I yeah. got to spend about just less than a month with him down in Texas in MD Anderson as we put him on life support and mm-hmm. then we took him off and, and, um, that, that of course was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was really hard on the whole family. Yeah. And so we we were all trying to navigate that. And unfortunately our, our daughter who is struggling with a lot of, and she's very open about it. I'm so proud of her. Mm. She just got out of the hospital this week, and she's got a lot of survival guilt. She was the one who donated the stem cells and and for his his transplant. And that it seemed like it was working, but then ended up he went into remission, right? Yeah, yeah. And he actually put that apparently on Facebook, and everybody thought he like when in was an alcoholic and started drinking again and he goes no 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 he put relapse that's oh, what he put okay, he goes looks like i've relapsed and everybody okay. thought oh we didn't know you were we here. didn't know yeah and in there he's like no guys my cancer relapsed and we kind of went oh, okay that's funny but um so there's she's she's struggling with survivors mm-hmm. uh guilt and we're working through that there's a lot of 
pieces that are really hard right now. And, uh, you know, as they say, this is supposed to be messy down here. So it's messy. But there is such one of the greatest gifts, I think, that Jeff and I have been so grateful for is the knowledge that the peace that comes in any of these, whether we were, it was in the Philippines and we were dealing with Taklob and sitting, being wiped out and, and the missionaries there, or whether it's in Africa and, and really challenging times there, or whether it's here with our family members, mm-hmm. is that, that gift of the Holy Ghost, that comforter that brings peace. Is never gone, even in your hardest moments. And you know, we we buried Josh, and as you well know, mm-hmm. we we're with you guys the next weekend after yeah, losing that. Jan, your mom. And it it you know the next weekend was our very best friend Janet Fuller's dad died, and right. we had that funeral the next weekend. And it's just nobody's immune from from challenges and from problems. And luckily we had 20 some years to build these relationships. So we've got wonderful friends and supports and you and, and Jeff and, and uh, Silas showing up in, Mm -hmm. in Florida the day after we found out Josh had relapsed and, we had just spent 24 hours sobbing and I said, don't come. And yes. we're in the hotel and I'm like, no, you guys, we are not, we're not celebrating Jeff's birthday. We're, this is not a good time. And having you guys just show up that night, getting those blessings, both Jeff and I, that I felt like it was very clear that night that mm-hmm. Josh wasn't going to make it. Yeah. We had no idea about the timeline, but it was very clear the Lord opened that to both of our minds. And that was probably the most sacred Marriott hotel room I've ever been in. With. It was, that was, so um, I've not, I don't think I've told you my side of the story. And just to maybe fill in some of the gaps, because you, I know you shared in a testimony kind of what happened, but um, so I work at FedEx and I can fly standby for really cheap. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> So I overheard Marsha talking about um, this conference she was going to be at in Orlando, and Jeff was going to go, and he loves Harry Potter and was going to go to Harry Potter World, and she was going to make the ultimate sacrifice and go to the amusement park, even though she doesn't love it. No, I sure know. (laughs) (laughs) And then Silas and Jeff both had, um, and I don't know how this all went down. I just Silas and Jeff Jensen, not Jeff Jeff French. Right. Yes. (laughs) Silas and Jeff Jensen were going to go down and surprise Jeff French for his birthday, which was that weekend. And I caught wind of this and, and I happen to be the ministering brother to both Jeff Jensen and Silas, Silas <laughs> which is fantastic. Cause I told Marcin, <laughs> I have to go to do my ministering. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, when I fly standby, there's a chance I may not get on the, on the flight. So I bought a ticket Yeah, and Marcia sent me a text on Thursday and she said, don't come. And I thought, I bought a ticket. I'm not going to give this up. And I'm going to go, and I'm just going to go. And whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and it's just going to be fine. And so I went, Silas and I ended up being on the same flight, and that was just fun. We got to to, uh, spend some time together, and we connected with Jeff later that night, Jeff Jensen. And then, um, you know, and I'm just kind of rolling with it. I I kind of feel like I invited myself, but they both said, 
Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so invite yourself. So um, that night, we go down to the hotel and uh, and pick you guys up. Jeff didn't know we were coming. I made some chocolate cake and shared that with Jeff. Both Jeffs and with Silas. They did not share with me, just for the record. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm sitting there in the, in the hotel room thinking, oh, that looks really good. <laughs> but um, we we knew, and I had talked to Silas. He didn't get the same text from you, so he didn't know that that Josh had, had oh, relapsed. And um, so I was using that to my advantage as well, that, well, I'm not going to give up on this whole whatever we're going to do. Right. And... Um, so it was just, it was such a tender moment when you asked if we could go to, to the hotel room and, and uh, for us to give you two blessings. And that was, it was a sacred moment. It was really special. And it was a, a tremendous honor to be in that moment where we could serve the French family. Well, and, and you were the only one who knew Josh yeah. because the other two had come right. in to our lives much later and they and that and that's kind of how we started the whole night right as they said hey tell us a little bit about josh you know and you had you know done all the shenanigans in the world (laughs) with josh so you knew josh really well yeah we had some fun yeah i think i remember you up on my roof one night right (laughs) i will not confirm nor deny (laughs) exactly exactly smart boy smart boy it was it was but it was so it was it Sacred is probably the best the best word for it. It was just a really um, tender experience that night to be in the presence of uh, wonderful people, you and Jeff and Jeff Jensen and, and Silas Smith, where we got to just experience that um, window of grief. That It was a window of grief, and it was an opening of the veil. I mean, I, yeah. I remember specifically feeling Mike uh, is my older brother who was killed, um, as you well know, but that the wording that he was there mm-hmm. and he, and I, and I could almost feel him like yeah. stand that energy. My mind could see his face at that very moment. I could hear this is a weird phrase and it's not going to make sense, but hear his presence. And I don't know how to describe it any other way, but I could, I mean, it was just, it was like the window was open and everything was going to be okay. Right. And for a minute we had this glimpse into eternity that felt so safe. Yeah. So safe. We don't know how it's going to look, but we know. It's yeah. Going we to don't know how it's going to look. And at that point, you know, we just, said, okay, tomorrow we're going to go play. And then, I mean, we played, and we played hard. Played super hard. We played hard, and we laughed, and we had such a blast, and we were so tired. Wonderful, though. But that was also the day, remember, at lunch, when we got the calls. Oh, now we think he has, you know, this, and now he has this, and now he has this. And it was, oh, my land. It's not just relapsed. It's come back with a vengeance. Right. And... So I took off with Jeff Jensen mm-hmm. and immediate change of plans. So instead, instead of leaving to go back home on Sunday, which I think, or Saturday, Sunday morning, I think is when yeah. we were all kind of planning on going back. And you got out early. So you I made yours. <laughs> Jeff and Silas played for another day in a hotel room ready they for the next flight, flight because they couldn't get their flight. 
and they Jeff, got to the airport, but the the line through security was so it was long. ridiculous. It was, and I Jeff and I were looking, going, "Oh my heck! I've never seen a security line this long." But how great was that for Jeff to spend another day just just with, with Silas and just to chill? And Jeff Jensen and I, he got us on a flight immediately, and we got to Utah, landed, and there was only a tiny window that I could have seen Josh. Right. It was from him going from one hospital to the other. And if I got there right in the window in between, because I couldn't go in the hospital, that right. wasn't ever going to, yeah, yeah, he had COVID and it was right in the middle of COVID. So there was no way they were going to let us go in. And it was like the Lord said, okay, you're going to get these 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And he was driving up to the hospital and we were right behind him. And so I got that amazing 15 or 20 minutes. And yes, amazing. we did break the rules and he did give me a hug. And, and I, I got it's back totally in the car it. with Bree and said, he looks terrible. And she's like, he looked good. His eyes were open. And I'm like, okay, we have two different standards. <laughs> he didn't look good. And then, um, but yeah, all that timing, it, it's like the Lord just opened every door so that those moments could be had. That's it's and it's wonderful when you can see those when you when you experience those moments. Yeah. So um my experience was once we and I don't remember when it was that I thought this, but um I'm so glad I ignored your text to not come. We're so glad you ignored that text. We couldn't have taken another day of grieving in that hospital. It wasn't home. It yeah. wasn't any it was just too painful. And we were both hurting so much. We needed that outside person or persons <laughs> that weren't stuck in that pain right. to help us see beyond that moment of pain. And it was so much fun to watch it, Jeff. Oh, my heck. Waving that Harry Potter wand. Oh, my heck. He's like, was he not like a little seven-year-old his first so time at an amusement park? He ha- and, it, and it was... Fun watching him have yes. so much fun. It was it was wonderful. It was such a great experience. And so um, Jeff Jensen and I had a conversation where we just talked about how how blessed we are that we got to be part of that. And so um, this has been so much fun for me to talk with you, understand a little bit more about. And we've Washington had a thousand French. conversations, I and know. this one we didn't even rehash anything we've had. <laughs> It's all new. It's all new stuff. So we could do a thousand more of these episodes. We won't put people through that right now. But thanks so much for spending some time. And thanks to members of the ward who are listening. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fisher Second Ward Podcast. Please share it with members of the ward or others who you think might be interested or might be enriched and blessed by listening to our stories. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week.